Hello, and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast. My name is Carl Pike. I'm a lecturer in British politics at Queen Mary and a deputy director of the Mile End Institute. Um, presenting the podcast with me today is Dr. Madeline Davis, who is a reader in the School of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Our guest today is John Crudas, the Member of Parliament for Dagenham and Raynham, and author of a new book called The Dignity of Labour, uh, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Hi, John. Thanks so much for um, coming onto the podcast. No, thanks for having me. I thought we'd start by going through the, the sort of general thesis of, of your book. Why have you chosen to focus here on, on dignity and, obviously, as the title says, on labour? The thing for me was to look at three intersecting crises that seemed to be to be consuming us as a society and our politics. The first was um, the crisis of the left, which is obviously as a Labour MP, that's something that is significant to me. And the long-term sort of crisis of social democracy, the fact that Labour had lost four elections in 11 years, the next one's going to be pretty difficult challenge. There's a uh, more than that, until Corbyn sort of detonated Labour politics, it seemed to be pretty managerial, pretty lacking a desire to inquire about, you know, the challenges and new energy to confront the problems that are inhabiting capitalism. It's sort of lack of purpose and character. That seemed to me to be quite a, something that needed to have a, be had a look at. And then the second thing interlinked to that was... The rise of authoritarian populism, um, obviously Trump's been defeated, but if you look around what's still going on literally over the last few weeks in Spain or Italy, France, Finland, um, across Western market economies, this growth of populist, nationalist, authoritarian movements, um, that sense of liberal democracy being upended, and some of the arguments by people like Michael Sandel that this was linked to questions of work and status. And so the politics of work was emerging as centre stage to that. And the third element, I suppose, was this enduring productivity crisis since the economic crash, which we describe almost as a benign thing called a puzzle. Whereas to me, it's, it's a deeper crisis in the character of work that seems to be bedeviling um, us as an economy and society. So there's these three things, the crisis of the left, the rise of authoritarian populism, and sort of flatlining productivity, declining levelling standards, which is a portal into the fact that modern capitalism can't really deliver what it purports to guarantee in terms of rising living standards, property, owning democracy, sound money and the like. And these three crises all seem to sort of link in to a question around work and um, its status in our lives today and what it does guarantee and what it doesn't, what we want from it and what it is offering us. And that discrepancy between how we want to live our lives and how we inhabit the world. And I think that's partly accounts for some of the rage and anger that you see upending and challenging liberal democracy. So all roads led back from those sort of challenges into how we understand our labour and revisit how we think of labour as an economic and social category, not just as a political category. So I thought in the context of the pandemic, where our labour was represented and the dignity of labour was front and centre in terms of 
the vocations that we clapped for, the jobs that and the care that was afforded to us as we stared death in the face, that seemed to me to be quite a good time to revisit the question of work and labour and what it means to us and what we're going to do about it in future in terms of trying to stabilise capitalism itself. The other thing that that is throughout the book and comes across very, very strongly, and, and people who pick it up will, will no doubt realise this, is, is Dagenham the story of Dagenham and not just the story of your time as the member of parliament, but, you know, Dagenham's um, history of, of work and of changing work and of uh, the political story. Do you want to discuss that a little bit too, maybe in terms of also how that inspired some of the writing and some of the thesis of the book? Yeah, well, it does. It's, it's, front and centre in all of it, actually, because, I mean, Dagenham is, um, modern Dagenham is 100 years old this year. Um, It was created in 1921. The first building in what became the biggest council estate in the world was opened, Chitty's Lane, if you need to know, in November 1921, um, fulfilling the Homes for Heroes notion of Lloyd George following the First World War. And it was, it was an extraordinary development, took 14 years to build 29,000 houses, um, and since its conception, whilst the estate was being built, you saw liberalism being overtaken by socialism in, in terms of the national stage. And then from then, 10 years after it started to be built, the Ford Motor Company opened its factory in Dagenham. At one stage, I had 43,000 workers. But most importantly, when it was actually built, was really the first multinational company in the world with uh, three centres, one in Dagenham, one in Detroit, one in Canada. The new production technologies central to Taylorism, um, Ford technologies had inspired, you know, quite dystopian science fiction. For example, the Brave New World was literally started just after the Dagenham uh, plant was opened, partly because of uh, Huxley's perception that Fordist production technologies could create new forms of tyranny and warnings against for humanity. And since then, the rise and fall of Fordism is synonymous with Dagenham, right? So it's almost a compact story of the last 100 years of British capitalism ripping through an outer London borough. Fast forward on, in the post-war era, Dagenham became synonymous, like Bethnal Green, as the virtues of stable working-class families and forms of fraternity. Um, usually very male and very white in their characterization. But the Institute of Community Studies, uh, Peter Wilmot, Michael Young, that whole attempt in post-war social democracy, especially to operationalize sociology to rebuild labor. So Dagenham was center stage in that. And then with deindustrialization, Thatcherism, the right to buy, the dismantling of Dagenham in terms of its work profile and housing profile. Subsequent to that, it became centre stage in a global fight against the far right with the BNP having 12 council seats and Nick Griffin thinking he'd win a seat in Parliament and take the council in 2010. And in the last few years, it's literally being rebuilt in terms of a modern growth strategy by a pioneering local council. So you, you have a concertina history of British capitalism over the last hundred years in its centenary year in Dagenham. And as an MP, you have this great resource that you represent to sort of bend any analysis through, you know, because you are the representative in Parliament. So you are, it's a great privilege in order to tell us 
story through refracting it through the community you represent. Um, so that's what I sought to do. I'm actually now writing a 100-year history of Dagenham, actually, which is a fantastic story. It literally saved Churchill from death in the Second World War through some of the medicines that it manufactured. I mean, it's a, an incredibly rich story of the last 100 years of Britain through one community in Outer East London. It really is a story of the resilience and the changing character of the British working class, really. So that's what I tried to use, because it also, certain forms of industrial militancy arguably brought down two Labour governments. And it's um, it's an incredibly rich texture politically in terms of mapping onto a wider diagnosis of work and the history of work. In terms of the, 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 the terms Labour and work, do you use them sort of inter- interchangeably in the text? Because I've got, I mean, obviously many people have discussed, you know, some of the differences between these terms. To give right. an example, you know, Hannah Arendt and, um, you know, considered, you know, labour very much to be the things that, if you like, you have to do. Right? You have to do some labour to survive. There are things that we have to do um, in order to survive. Work was considered to be something where you made a thing. Something was produced that wasn't necessarily essential for you to actually live. Um, and there was a, a, a distinction she drew there, often sort of tied in with a, a critique of, of Marxism. How do you see that that distinction in, in your narrative? Because obviously, as well as work um, and a lot of the things that you talk about in the book and, and you know you just talked about with Dagenham and Fordism for example there is of course also labor a great deal of labor that that human beings have to do uh, which isn't work so how do you see that distinction does, you, does it come across in the book or do you use them more interchangeably well it's a very interesting question this because I was going to develop a rent's arguments in the book but I that was one of the things that were cut out in the end in the end I ended up with a I use how in different languages and societies almost throughout history different philosophies religions you have a distinction between the interesting and the creative and the boring and the laborious you know so that that's sort of you see you tend to have a distinction between physical toil and something that is more expressive and self-realizing you know I use a um, there's a there's a fantastic poem. It's the first one he ever published, actually, in his first collection. Seamus Heaney. There's a famous famous um, poem called "Digging," where he renders almost indivisible his labour as a poet with that of his father and grandfather cutting the bog on the land and the beauty of physical toil. So it's not simply division between the laborious, the toil, and the creative. A rent. She has a different approach. to. She has this basic question of subsistence or work, but then labour is something that establishes continuity through history. It is something that renders intelligible our own humanity that is bigger than us, that you can lose yourselves in your work. Um, it can be rewarding individually and for society at large, but it is an element of the human condition yet can be degraded by capitalism. So so she I mean she actually sees it as something that is 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 necessary so that we don't spend time too much time dwelling death. You know, there is something that gives purpose and reward to our life as such rather than simply focusing on our own mortality. So there's a few different frames you can actually analyze this. I tended to focus in in terms of a sense of degradation 
inherent with capitalism and the degradation of uh, labour or work. But at the same time, the ongoing battle to retain control and dignity in one's labour. So there's a sort of, there are similar themes throughout, um, both in terms of the human condition, but also some wider ethical and religious contributions that you see this division between toil and creativity, but it's more complicated than that. So I try to focus in on the questions of dignity and degradation, something you lose through the separation of yourself and your control from your own labour as being a better way of trying to address some of the ongoing themes of control of the labour process, dispossession, and modern degradation in terms of the gig economy and the role of politics to contest this. Because my other element, which was one of the reasons I wrote this, is there is a sort of new socialist imagination that sees all work as inherently undignified. There is no such thing as dignified work, which I wanted to push back on against a bit because I share Arant's view that it can be a a form of self-realisation reward through our own creativity which is central to our meaning and existence so it's it was a way of sort of trying to get into some of the modern debates around post-capitalism the end of work how that sort of transitions into some of the debates about universal basic income as well so it tried to create a frame around the dispossession of yourself from your own labor as a sort of portal into some of these wider more practical debates I really enjoyed the book is the first thing to say. And what I especially enjoyed about it is the breadth of the range. It's not often you come across something that ranges from, you know, classical political economy, the labor theory of value. We've got virtue ethics in there. We've got Kieslowski films and Andrea Arnold's fish tank. So I wanted to explore a little bit with you how all of that fits together. And more specifically, I was really interested in your description of the task for today's left as um, I think you describe it somewhere as a task of political reimagination based on a return to exiled political and philosophical traditions. And I wanted to push you a little bit on these traditions. So could you talk a bit about the main intellectual influences here? And in particular, what are these exiled left traditions you want to recover? And how can they speak to us today? I sort of begin the book, not in the tyranny of merit, but some of his recent essays, Sandel, I think is really instructive Mm. in terms of diagnosing the status and the crises that are afflicting the left. And his basic argument is that you can understand the rise of authoritarian populism as a failure of the left, actually. It is symptomatic of its its diminishment in terms of its ethical character. Compare, for example, the left today with the post-war moral desire to confront capitalism, regulate the market. It had a power, a purchase, a moral currency within that. It got pushed back by Reagan, Thatcher. What came then in its place became with Clinton, the third way, Schroeder, Blair, was itself somewhat managerial, left unaltered some of the basic architectural questions within modern capitalism. It was about distributing the rewards of growth rather than going into some of the character issues inherent within modern capitalism and its failure to deliver. And that has created somewhat of an angry backlash against um, that sort of managerialism, especially in the aftermath of an economic crisis, which demonstrated that it had few resources to fall back on, the left did. And that, I think, partly accounts for some of the populist left around Corbyn, obviously, which have tried to excavate some histories in terms of the radical or the far left. Um, But there are also other resources that can be drawn on. 
to go back to your question, I, I'm quite interested in certain ethical traditions that you can detect in the early history of the left. I always tend to, there, there is, it goes into a different time, different traditions of what socialism is. So, you know, Crossland defined 14 variations of socialism before his own one. Um, I preferred the tawny approach, which tends to delineate the history of socialism as falling between ethical and economic traditions. And that, I think is played out in history. So Ken Morgan looks to the creation of the ILP and the Fabians in 1883 and 84 as separating out between utilitarian traditions and ethical or moral traditions. And I would suggest it's the latter that you can see re-emerge with certain of the anti-authoritarian new left traditions. There is a continuity through history, which I seek to add in through trying to rehabilitate a post-war industrial relations tradition uh, to try and build a stakeholder model of capitalism in the post-war periods around the extension of collective bargaining, which borrow from earlier guild traditions. So, sorry, this is quite a convoluted argument, but there are there are different lost histories, it seems to me, that we might want to use to rethink the future today. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by the way you tried to weave all of those together to recover this kind of, you know, left ethical tradition. But you also don't shirk the questions of economics. And there's quite a big, long section in the book, in fact, about, you know, the labor theory of value and how there have been various misappropriations of that. And I actually thought that the attempt to weave all of that together was really brave and really ambitious. But I also wanted to push you a bit on um, your critique of techno determinism. So there's quite a lot of criticism in the book aimed at a strand of left that you describe as techno-determinism or the post-work left. And at one point, you even say that tech-utopianism has become a defining characteristic on the modern left. So I suppose my question is, has it really? Why choose techno-utopianism as your main adversary in the book? Mm. I tell you what is sort of, I always found really interesting with Corbyn, and it was some of the younger elements around it who were, trying to appropriate Marxism um, and use it today. And it was, you can, there is no doubt you can detect some form of a new socialist imagination. Let's call it that. You hear talk of automated luxury communism. I spend quite a bit of time um, going through Paul Mason's Post-Capitalism, which I think is a fantastic book. I have a lot of trouble with its theoretical architecture. There is this sort of, approach where we seek to reinvent the future, demand full automation and a world without work of abundance almost, often financed by UBI, where there is, as I say, no such thing as dignified work. Going back to Paul, he's just recently said in a New Statesman piece that if Labour rejects a vision of a, quote, post-work future powered by automation, it will condemn itself to irrelevance. So I do detect borrowing on some post-war 60s autonomism from Italy, Tony Negri, Mario Tronzi, that sort of tradition, I do detect a new sort of quite agile socialist rethink going on, which which was mainlined into Labour through the Occupy movements, through the uh, from the campus agitations of the early 2000s. They, they sort of bent into Corbynism and created quite a radical... Um, new tradition. And I thought that demanded some sort of scrutiny. And I was very interested in its specific pivot within Marxism that allowed itself 
to assume that the working class was dematerializing um, through a specific approach to value theory within Marxism. Now, I know this can become very abstract, but in the abstract decisions and assumptions within it are a radical um, political reorientation of left politics through campaigning for a world without work. Whereas I was taught, I was a construction worker, trade unionist in Australia in the very early 80s, that it was the search for dignity through labour that was the centre of the contested employment relationship, which was the hallmark of socialism in its various iterations, be they certain forms of social democracy or even radical left politics through different value theories. So that's why I spend the first half of the book going through different theories of value and how they've conditioned post-war British politics, be they through classical political economy, Smith Mill, Ricardo, Marxism or neoclassical economics and Thatcherism, because they all bend around different interpretations and approaches to labour as an economic and social category, as does modern Marxism. And I think that should be scrutinised a bit more, given its prevalence across the left today. On that, though, I mean, I do think you make a really strong case for rerouting this, um, what you describe as a kind of ethically assertive politics in people's experiences of work. But is there a limit to how far that should go? Is there a danger of over-prioritising employed work as yeah. this key source of meaning or human purpose? And I just wanted to ask about this in relation maybe to this other left literature. So what about forms of social production and, and indeed reproduction that are outside right. of wage labour and which are also often gendered, things like care work, domestic work? Where do those figure in your arguments and don't they also need to be repoliticized? I to- totally agree with that. And I think one of the obvious self-criticism, looking back at this, actually now talking to some people about the book, is the focus on productivity and GDP mm. as truncating your conceptions of work, which goes back to Carl's point about labour and work, etc. Um, I don't mean it to, but you have to think outside of the current definitions of productivity and GDP, especially if the argument is, for example, in the context of the pandemic, how we reward and what is the status of work often barely above minimum wage with little or no protections. And often these vocations or callings are those which involve the caring for one another. So that means you must redefine the purpose of work in society. And that's why the pandemic seems to me to be an obvious opportunity to rethink not just questions of what you reward or value or, you know, to monetary ways, but also we collectively as a society, how we want to live. Because if we have a a situation where we value least that which involves care for one another, that shines a light on what we value as a society more generally. And that's why I do think the question of human dignity is a useful organising principle to rethink these questions of work and value and purpose, not just in the sense of dignity as in a jobs hierarchy, but what we tolerate in terms of degradation or indignities, in terms of exploitation, abuse, slavery, that that sort of more ethical approach to it. So I take the point. What this necessarily does is means that we must rethink the nature of work more generally and how we calculate progress in society in terms of gross domestic product. I do I do use a Bobby Kennedy, famous Bobby Kennedy speech, where he talked about GDP um, calculating everything apart from that which is important in our lives. And that's exactly right. And I think that your question nails it in terms of a wider conversation about um, 
the vocations that we want to nurture and see as foundational in terms of rebuilding the societies we come out of the pandemic. I mean, it just struck me that a conversation to be staged between you and maybe somebody who uh, is kind of in and sympathetic to this post-work literature could be really enriching because one of the, for me at least, one of the quite interesting aspects of that work is that it can invite us to think in quite speculative and critical ways about other sources of, you know, dignity, autonomy, creativity outside of the wage relationship. And for me, that's one part of the purpose of that kind of literature. Well, just on that, I totally agree with that, actually. I totally agree with that. And I should add, when I say I wanted to scrutinise this new literature or this new socialist thinking, I do that because I'm intrigued by it, because I think it's a really interesting moment where you have, and it's partly generational because of the palpable reality that capitalism cannot deliver, um, but it's also creating quite a, a rethink about some more fundamental questions that my generations had dabbled with years ago, but then arguably we parked and we hadn't scrutinised or updated sufficiently. And then a, a younger generation has sort of detonated a lot of left thinking and the compromises involved in that and demanded a, a much more radical rethink, which I think is fantastic. So it is more out of uh, an appreciation of this stuff rather than trying to knock it down, you know. But I do yeah. think it does, does demand scrutiny in terms of some of the theoretical assumptions it makes Mm -hmm. around the trajectory of modern capitalism and some of the assumptions it makes about demographic and technological determinism within the history of the left, which to me has always been a a troublesome hallmark of left thinking. So yeah, towards the end of the book, John, you start to draw out some policy implications from your analysis and you recommend something that you call a good work covenant that a future Labour government could implement. And this covers things like um, rights at work, fair, fair reward, decent conditions, uh, work that promotes human dignity, well-being, autonomy, access to support, participation and learning. But there's also quite a few specific policy recommendations. Can you tell us a bit more about how you would envisage this kind of agenda being implemented? Even though this book is not about policy per se, it's about how we look at labour as an economic and social category and some of the debates around that, it seems to me it's incumbent to then say, okay, what might this look like? 20 pages or so at the back go through, I suppose, eight or nine areas of policy intervention. And the idea is, firstly, to re-establish good work as a, an overriding objective of government. So I think there is a notion of a good work covenant can be useful in stating as an act of public policy, this is what the government believes in. It will seek to nurture through all of its different strands of government, through procurement um, and through what it advocates and consequently seeks to legislate around. Um, the second element is really around a bunch of issues about coming out of the pandemic about how we reward vocation, new centres for vocation, making sure they are properly rewarded, whether key public servants should have also access to key public services, um, to try and reset what we reward in terms of public service uh, and what we value across society. The third element is around uh, a voice for labour at work. I was involved in the Labour government when we introduced minimum wage and uh, it's my responsibility to do a lot of the union recognition legislation that we put in from 97 to 2000. And argue that never really worked. So I try and suggest some new ideas around how you extend conditions of employment into unorganised sectors. 
the fourth element really goes into some of the challenges, technological challenges, which which challenge the integrity of the person, given, you know, surveillance capitalism, start to think about some of that. There are also other questions about technical questions to individual and collective rights, especially around the gig economy, around the definition of workers. And then I go into a wider debate around the right to work and whether we can learn from um, not just uh, New Deal policies in terms of stimulating the economy in the 30s, but what uh, Roosevelt was trying to do in the 40s in terms of rethinking economic and constitutional rights for all American citizens in terms of the right to work, right to security, right to education and health. And I think that's quite a rich theme for the left today in terms of rethinking citizenship. And then I go in about some central government approaches to rethinking work in the future, making sure that the, a labour interest is at the centre of government decision making. And then some sort of research base to navigate the future of work in the future. So there's, there's a whole series of policy remedies, which I thought I'd have to put in so it didn't become over abstract, which is a criticism of some of the other parts of the book. My point is, this is contested political terrain. These are the subjects of political choices rather than anything being inevitable or deterministic in terms of the future shape of work. And it's up for us to reimagine its role and legislate on it accordingly. Some of the proposals reminded me a little of Will Hutton's work, particularly his book, How Good We Can Be. I mean, it takes me to, to, the, to the UBI uh, right. argument. Forgive me for people listening if you're a big fan or a critic of, of UBI, because I don't really want to talk about UBI itself and the pros and cons of it. I think what's, what's perhaps more interesting is I think of Ed Miliband and his narrative about Corbynism. And one of the things he said about Corbyn's leadership was that, you know, sort of agree or disagree with various things that Jeremy Corbyn said. His fundamental insight was that people were looking for very, very big changes. And I think that that kind of attraction is there with UBI, right? You know, it, it, it just it lends itself to being a very big transformational idea and whilst you're really clear in the book um, as you've just said that you know it's not a book about policy it's a book about work perspectives is it a challenge not just to if you like other social democratic voices and influences in the labor party in recent years but also to your prospectus that it doesn't sort of fulfill that big criteria of being a big transformational idea that people sort of instantly grasp see i would argue and and ubi is a really big powerful idea and i can see arguments for and against it um so before the pandemic struck it was seen as an antidote to automation when the virus struck it's an antidote from contagion you know it's a sort of magic bullet for all sorts of different challenges of today and i can see big arguments for it from whatever approach to justice you operate in there's right-wing arguments left-wing arguments liberal utilitarian arguments there's Republican arguments for it. My point is you have to inspect the motives of those who are arguing for it. So I don't support the UBI that Milton Freeman or Charles Murray would advocate. You know, you can't just say you support it or you don't. You have to say why you support it and what the drivers are for it. And I also think just because an idea might be big, it might also be wrong and it needs scrutiny in terms of the assumptions it makes. So I take Ed's point that something is big, it might be uh, powerful and seductive, but that's not the role of politicians to follow and chase after big seductive ideas because it might be big and destructive. 
the, these things are not necessarily benign and, and positive. I mean, you could imagine UBI as a as an ultimate uh, provider of uh, a neoliberal endgame of atomized consumption and a lack of agency. You know, I think. Uh, this argument is about preserving the dignity of labour. I mean, it is linked actually to the stakeholder ideas because I try and rehabilitate an early stakeholder model post-war era, which was trying to civilise capitalism by bolting in the working class into the regulation of the economy, which I think is a big idea, especially in an era where the working class um, are increasingly attracted to authoritarian populist movements that are threatening the very foundations of democracy and liberalism, that, that there is no bigger idea than something like that. Now, it might be very difficult, and there's a danger that some of these big signature fashionable ideas are big, powerful, and wrong, but they are simple and easily to be understood. I mean, there is an argument for complexity, I suppose, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to continue to emphasise because the danger for UBI is, to me, it can become an I-give-up-on-work policy. Now, that's not a big idea. That's just a a signal of defeat to me, you know? So in these big signature issues, you can also get symptoms of decay and loss that have disfigured and account for the failures of the left. And And by resorting to these big fashionable ideas without due scrutiny, it seems to me that could well compound the problem that you face. Does that suggest, though, that as well as a focus on dignity and work, that that needs to be part then of a broader ethical idea? Because it, it would it be enough in itself, a big enough idea, if you like, to counter the populist right? Or are you seeing it as one part of uh, this proposal, as one part of a much more ethically assertive yeah, I, new agenda? I, no doubt. This is the first of a three-part project. This is on labour. The second is on the question of community. And the third is reimagining human rights. As a sort of, it was all going to be one, but it became a bit unwieldy, so I chopped it up into three. Can you excavate the history of post-war human rights thinking and re- reintroduce it today in terms of some of those ethical currents and also confront some of the degradations inherent in some sorts of technological change, which others see as utopian and liberating, I see as somewhat more dystopian and worrying but you know so that's the sort of so this is not an end in itself initiative around labor the idea is to just inspect this as one part of a future public policy for for the left or just to try and contribute to one and obviously by just focusing on one thing there's an obvious charge that why didn't you focus on this or that and there's a lot more to be said on an awful lot of other things. But it seemed to me, given the history of British post-war politics and the challenges of the left and what some are arguing are the reasons for the upending of liberal democracy, work and Labour was a very good place to start. I'd like to now move to the Labour Party and maybe finish up a little bit with something specific to the Labour Party itself. I mean, I mean, as Madeline said, there are lots of really, really interesting um, parts of the book. One of the most powerful sections is about Blair, And you talk about his memoir, and you say that his own story disinvents himself and his early ethical concerns, as if to hide what he lost. It is a sad backfill. And I I think when readers pick up the book, I I think they'll also find the the section on New Labour, although it's quite short, your evaluation of New Labour is is very uh, striking, I think. Thinking about that and today's Labour Party... What do you think 
is the potential for Labour to reinvent itself mm. once again, because it does seem now for a decade or more that the Labour Party has been struggling to get over new Labour and reacting to new Labour. Do you think there is the potential for a, a reinvention over the next couple of years ahead of the, uh, the next election? Well, the thing that interested me and has interested me for years is how Blair has become a pariah through vast swathes of the left and the Labour Party. My fear is the way that he has become this thing to define yourself against is that exile within Labour doesn't help you own your victories and dissect your defeats. You know, it, it seems to me it's very difficult to own your recent history if you cannot reconcile or have a, an account of Blair, which, is, which goes beyond this bad guy, winner, divide. You know, there needs to be a bit more nuance in it. I think there is a story to be told about the changing character of Blair himself and his leadership. Now, he always argues that I was at the best at the end. You know, I'd learned how to mm. do the job and I was mm. cut off in my prime and, you know, da, 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 da. Well, I, well, I sort of invert that story because yeah. the thing for me is to account for the power and the purchase he had with the people. And this is where he sells himself very short functionally, I think. Uh, and I describe it as a backfill because he disinvents himself. His early attempts to quite consciously reconcile economic and ethical traditions, partly because of his own spiritual uh, concerns, but he, he was ethically informed. Um, and I think that allowed for his grip and power with the people. Um, and it informed a lot of the thinking in the first term. But gradually, those elements were crowded out in terms of his political character and the character of the government, partly because of the Treasury, but partly through his embrace of a what works, works sort of embrace, you know, like um, manage, managerialism, which I trade back to the Sandel thesis about the diminishment of the left, you know, because Blair pushed back against that, as did Keating a bit as well. Um, and there is a story to be told about how Keating changed. But I think there's a, there's a really interesting story to be told about the changing texture of the Blair administration, which is more nuanced than we get at the present. Um, maybe it'll be a while before we can fully explore it. But the key to it is for Labour to own its own history so that it can have a chance of reconciling and rebuilding a coalition and actually do what New Labour did in the 90s, which was provide a contemporary story of economic and social modernisation, which was alive to the cross currents in society and the economy at the time. Now, that wouldn't work now. And that's arguably where you can criticise some of his recent interventions, say, in the New Statesman, which looks slightly mm. old to me, even though the diagnosis was great. The remedies were sort of 30 years old, it seemed to me. But the point I'm making is Tony talks about his biography, he calls it a journey. Well, the real journey to me is how he sort of disguised what propelled him into power in the first place, because he sort of doesn't want to go there. Now, that maybe I'm overreading it, but that's how I understood it. Or maybe I'm telling more about why I connected with it at the time. So it's more about me than him. But, you know, that, but there is something, there was something that was lost. There was a degradation within that government in terms of its power and its, um, its communication, its connection with people. And that's being played out now with Labour. You know, obviously, Labour's electoral challenge, um, as well as its challenge around ideas, you know, these are these are really big challenges for Labour, um, and there are matters that are very relevant to your book um, about work and 
standards of work and there are others that are that are different right you know we, we, there is a, an issue for labor amongst you know voters who are over 55 um non-graduates owning their own home joe crisp uh, an academic at bath i think has shown this very well in on twitter and um you know the, the challenge for labor electorally goes beyond any one theme or argument and of course you know the consequences of brexit both electoral and you know real in terms of economic effects are going to be with us there are huge issues like scotland and 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 the state of scottish labor and whether it can recover what do you think keir starmer needs to be prioritizing over the next 18 months in terms of getting labor into more of a place that it can challenge at the next election i take your point carl i mean there are so many elements to our are uh, challenging position, shall we sort of uh, euphemistically describe it as that? Let's call it a crisis. What do we do? Well, that's partly why I just sort of jumped in, really, saying, well, you could start with rethinking questions of work as some sort of anchor to a wider conversation about where we go, not least because there is energy around a self-described post-work left in and around labour, which I think needs to be scrutinised. Now, the real question for me is, whether we can get out from these trap games, these binary trap games that defigure a left politics, you know, leave, remain, geography, education, and that. And um, now some say we have to play on one part of the pitch, that we have to double down. There's inevitability about what's happening here. We have to be the remain party. and There's a new blue wall, and we have to accept this transition from one base to a new base on the left. And I'm sort of cautious about that for what we've talked about before. I'm also cautious about some of the new distributional politics that you see around to say this is all about assets or it's about age or it's about you know certain forms of consumption because I think that does play into some of these binaries and I think you have to create some sort of transcending story. Now, the way I would go is to go back to FDR's 44 speech and start talking about new fundamental economic and social rights for all citizens around work, security, education, health, uh, add in new ones about surviving as the planet degrades, new new rights to you know live in a country that confronts the degradation of the planet. There is a frame around economic and social rights that I think could be, and, and that itself organised around questions of human dignity, that could create a new frame for a left politics to get out from under this trap game of being caught in the binaries of choosing which side of the pitch you play on because that seems to me to be deadly a there's no a majority there in terms of gaining and retaining power but secondly it's chasing voters rather than building your public philosophy on what you think should be a model of justice and then taking your case to the country rather than chasing after different parts of the country and maybe we should concentrate on how we think society should be ordered a new telos a new purpose a new public philosophy and then make the case for it to the people now strangely enough Keir Starmer who had an international reputation defending questions of human dignity globally before he became an MP could have the skill set to speak to that agenda um, if he can talk to the agenda that arguably inspired him before he actually became an MP that sounds slightly paradoxical but there's a sort of work profile in there that could speak to a new agenda around new forms of citizenship and as you have to mention the word joe biden and all this but he seems to be you know a guy who's nearly 80 a sort of centrist insider 
gaff prone as he is, he does seem to be able to rewire a coalition, weave together progressive and traditional elements and have quite an inspiring agenda in terms of fiscal interventions and progressive causes and challenging the degradation of the planet. So there is in plain sight, seems to me there's an agenda there. If we have the wherewithal to get out from this internal culture, the factionalism and speak and inspire about a country that we imagine rather than currently inhabit. Well, great. Thank you, John. Um, and you know, thanks from both Madeline and I for um, coming onto the podcast today. And thank you to everybody who listened. You can find the Marlin Institute on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and you can sign up uh, for the mailing list to hear about future events and podcasts. So thank you very much.